Hello. On a distant hillside, in a blasted landscape, two cowled figures are absorbed in a game of chess. One moves a piece, the other kicks the board over and stomps away. The remaining player pulls back his hood and turns to face you. His name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and calligraphist, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo. This evening's presentation is The Wicker Tree, a 2011 horror and spiritual sequel to The Wicker Man, and my guest is Podno's mastermind and knower of cinema, George Grimwood. You join us in the Riverside Bar of the British Film Institute, set in the glittering grey concrete of London's South Bank. While it's almost Halloween, and Halloween is a time for scary movies, of course, so um, we've chosen a sequel to one of the greatest scary films of all time, and that is uh, The Wicker Tree, written and directed by Robin Hardy, based on his novel, Cowboys for Christ, and Hardy is himself the director of The Wicker Man, the 1973 classic, the Citizen Kane of horror movies, supposedly. Have you, have you seen The Wicker Man, George? Yes, I have. Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoyed it at the time. I remember being incredibly freaked out by all elements of it. What I liked about it, and I find there is a common strand in 70s horror films, certainly British 70s horror films, is the, the, the quietness, the calmness. The, there's a, not much has to happen in a kind of energetic way to make things effectively creepy and unsettling. And something that came to mind almost instantly upon starting The Wicker Tree was, do you reckon people pay pilgrimage to the wicker tree in the same way they do to the wicker man do you reckon they go to the locations i i wouldn't imagine it to be likely to the location of the wicker tree itself i imagine that they'd have difficulty finding it yes because it looks like a hill and that's it and that's it it's a nice bit of scenery also largely shot on location in scotland Mm -hmm. and um the scenery looks nice it's not very well filmed I heard for a long time that there were rumours that there were plans for a sequel to The Wicker Man. I know that there was actually one planned not long after the original film came out and that it would involve Edward Woodward's character surviving his ordeal and and everyone would be older to accommodate the the fact that everyone had aged. I think this was probably more towards the 90s when it was gaining ground as a cult movie. Mm. I can't picture Edward Woodward getting out of that situation. (laughs) No, I mean, burning to death is often fatal spoilers yeah well i mean it's on the cover of the dvd that annoys me i know it's there's really no excuse for it I mean, it's, it's on the dvd menu as well that's why for example when i had a film night at a pub once to show the wicker man i had to find the one american film poster which didn't have the wicker man on it it was instead the the symbol of the sun you know with the face oh, i see noada mm. noada the sun god ah is it noada the sun god yes that would explain. That, is, that does explain a big plot detail in The Wicker Tree. Yeah. But it's, it's a plot detail. It's a reference that means nothing. Yeah. It's, it's an in-joke, really. The, oh, I get that. But if you don't, it doesn't really matter. Much mm. like most of the film. Exactly. So anyway, there were plans for The Wicker Tree. Eventually, The Wicker Tree came together as a film production in the early 2000s. But financing fell apart at the last minute. Hardy turned his script into a novel called Cowboys for Christ. And eventually he managed to get money together and filmed it in, I believe, 2009, 2010. It had its UK premiere at the Fright Fest in the summer of 2011 and was re- had a very limited cinema release and DVD release the following year. I finally saw it earlier this year. It aired on the Horror Channel on a Tuesday night at half past 12, which I thought was a very 
appropriate time slot for such a production, a hidden time slot for a hidden gem. And for what it's worth, it doesn't really feel like a horror. I mean, the first difference between this and, say, the original, and this is the trouble, I find myself constantly comparing it to the original, even though I shouldn't be, because they're really nothing alike at all, is that in the first few moments you see a big old splatter of blood on, on a door window pane. You know? Yes. And you don't get barely a trickle in the... In the in yeah, the that's, that's what makes the original so good, is it's all hmm. suspense. Yeah. And it's atmosphere and mood. And even even at the the climax of the movie, which it should be, is is a, it's a sense of physical horror because it's the main character burning to death. It's done very cleverly so that you never see any real violence or unpleasantness. And I think that was also partly a budgetary issue because the original was quite low budget, mm. as indeed was this. But I felt too much of it is also it's a retreading a lot of ground. It has nothing new to say. The Wicker Man is looking at comparative religion and is saying you know, religion is in some ways a trap to imprison one's behaviour in the same way that the police officer is a devout Christian and that is putting limits on his own behaviour that he should be able to break free from while the villagers are pagans who practice human sacrifice so that limits theirs because effectively they, have, they value human life considerably less and they each have arguments in favour of their faiths, but ultimately they're still imprisoned. And also in terms of the use of music, you were mentioning the music there in, in terms of the relating to pagan rituals and so yes. forth. They always, they very knowingly take the p- uh, in this one. I mean, because even at the, even not to jump to the end, but even when they're going, oh, we've got these songs for this one, um, which was, yeah, it doesn't, and that's the thing and you know the, the irony that ultimately um, the song sung in at the climax is a song that was sung by Beth and Steve the uh, born again Christians from Texas yes and oh the irony that actually that applies to not only the Christians but also the pagans as well there's power in the blood power which I ch- is, that's a real hymn because mm. uh, it's an actual proper song uh, that appears and there's also a brief appearance by a Flanders and Swan number Yes, which is really badly shoehorned in, where one character is playing eating pe- uh, the reluctant cannibal on a record player, and it feels very, very clumsy, a very odd piece of foreshadowing. But it's also in the book, yeah. And it's saying, "Oh yes, this, the character is listening to this because of the relevance that it has to what's going on in the village." I think, no, he wouldn't. He'd try to he'd be trying to block it out. He'd be listening to Enya or um, something relaxing. There was no empathy with any character for starters. That was my one, my first issue with the film, is that you go into it straight away, and these are characters that are laughable, that are unrelatable, and not to sound completely pessimistic, they're not likeable. No, they're not. They're not interesting either. In the original, you have Sergeant Howie, who, right from the off, is portrayed as a prig, but one who has a practical approach. He is a devout Christian, but he's also a police officer in the extended version, which is now in circulation. As I seen near the beginning, where some, he sees graffiti where someone's painted on the wall, Jesus saves, and one of the, one of the other cops says, oh, "I see there's a message for us all," and he says, "Well, there's a time and place for everything. Have it removed." So, well, yeah, I mean, it's a, yes, the, his police, his duty as a police officer is on a more practical level. So, say, so, yeah, well, that's that's vandalism. Get rid of it. Doesn't matter what it says. He sticks to his guns. That's the thing. He's he's respectable. He's respectable he's, because he's got he's moral honest yeah. as well. Even though he isn't a nice person, he is honest. He's got moral backbone. Yeah, he's there to look for a missing child. 
even even in, even though it's in pursuit of his duty as a police officer, he genuinely cares. He's genuinely concerned. He's just not nice. Good is not nice. I think that, that's always an interesting. True. It's a very seventies thing as well. Like Popeye Doyle, he's a horrible man, mm. but he's doing his duty as a police officer. And Popeye, and Popeye, who beats people to death. Yeah. But he, but he laughs about it, yeah. and, and he eats spinach. So yeah. he's he's good at that. I hate spinach. <laughs> well, that's why I've never I've never really empathised with Popeye because he eats the vegetable that I hate. I like cream spinach, but I can't eat it. I mean, that's the thing. Oh, I've had cream spinach. It's like if food could vomit. You, you need it with a nice steak. I find I had it with a nice steak, and I wanted to die. Oh, well, to be fair though, it, it doesn't. Re- I, I can I can't understand eating canned cream spinach. That sounds terrible. But I think that's what he must be eating because he can't be eating just leaves because they they would just fall out for starters. They wouldn't just all slop into his mouth. Well, it is a cartoon. And and how did, have you seen the in the um, the the live action film? How did they do it in the in that? You know what? I can't remember, but I feel that we one I must rewatch it, and two we must do that as an episode. I was talking the other day, actually. This is going off on a slight tangent about Robert Altman's bizarre filmography because he's best known for making these films with big ensemble casts, overlapping dialogue, all that kind of thing, like Mash or Pret a Porter and that kind of thing. But he's also done Popeye. He did a sci-fi movie with Paul Newman. Mm-hmm set in a new ice age he's got a weird filmography I love The Long Goodbye which is uh, underrated I like the idea of it but I think I think my problem with it was more the script mm. and the, the plot which I'm, I've never been that keen on Raymond Chandler uh, but I like the idea of just transposing it to a modern setting and sort of reworking it so that it fits early 70s California yeah I'd say that's a film I could watch more than once whereas with The Wicker Tree I've had to watch it several times to get ready for this podcast. I actually watched it live on TV when it went out, very late at night. I had to go to work the following morning, and I was staggered now, when you by say, what I was watching. When you say live on TV, do you mean... As it was being broadcast. Oh, right. It wasn't actually being live performed. There wasn't a live performance No, it, it wasn't. I mean, I know it, it looks like a Village Hall production. Yep. It looks like a, like a community group film project yes which i would absolutely support Mm -hmm. i think it's great to bring art into the community and to have people participate in something creative art this is art this is art it's crap art but this was no this is made by professionals what the professionals if bodie and doyle had made a movie this would it it wouldn't be as bad as this i i think they probably have more nudity for no reason yeah but it'd be each other yeah (laughs) I've seen that episode of the comic strip. Just wrestling. Hardcore <laughs> wrestling. And, and, and touching. Mm. The basic plot is it's vaguely similar to the, to the Wicker Man. Two Texans. One is a best-selling pop singer, who is a born-again Christian, and her childhood sweetheart, who is a cowboy. Uh, uh, and I, I think that's, that's not unreasonable, because you know, out, out in the wilderness in Texas, they do still have cowboys and cattle ranches and things like that. That's not unfair. His hat really annoyed me. <laughs> his, his hat is a continuing motif all the way through the film, and it does get ridiculous. It, it, it just annoyed me, the fact that he wore it in his sleep. He literally... Oh, yes, he does wear it in his sleep. He never takes it off. And so that's, I mean, I think that's where the emphasis is meant to come in. When, when we finally see the hat on its own later with Lolly holding it, we're meant to go, oh, no one gives a shit. No. <laughs> because, I mean, we, I mean, we should have been more concerned by, uh, uh, spy- I mean, listener, we told you in advance that we were going to be watching this, so it's not a spoiler to say he gets eaten alive <laughs> by a crowd of naked people. Yeah, raw as well. Like, 
They just tear him apart and eat. Yeah, they had at least the good grace to cook Edward Woodward first. Yeah. This makes no sense. If that's meant to be for, you know, for their sacrifice, then it's not much of a sacrifice if there's nothing to... There's, nothing, there's no proof. Well, it's the act. Mm. The, act of, the act itself is a sacrifice. But his soul... I think I remember his line. Oh, but his soul lives on. I don't know what the accent is there. That's but a great Welsh accent. Oh, but his soul lives re- on. I've been re-watching Over the Engine. I'd watch, I'd watch the, the Welsh wicker tree. The wicker tree. The wicker tree. Oh... You could actually, I mean, you could easily set this, I mean, just for variation, they could have set it in Wales, in mm. the wilds of Snowdonia, or somewhere like that, which is, you know, again, a very isolated location, mm. um, pagan rites and that kind of thing is sort of, historically, that did occur there. It would make sense, but, you know, let's have it set in an isolated location in the Scottish borders. The Scottish borders are not an isolated location. Nope. If it's 15 miles from an airport... And it has a nuclear power station. Mm. I mean, isolated locations are the best place for nuclear power stations. Yeah. But um, this couple decide to go to Scotland mm-hmm. as, as missionaries, effectively. As missionaries to the heathen wilderness of Dumfrieshire and spread the word about Jesus Christ. And they're taken in by a wealthy couple, Sir Lachlan Morrison and his wife, Della. And it becomes very obvious that the Morrisons have a nasty plan for them because they are acting sinister straight from the off and Sir Lachlan looks like a villain from a 60s episode of Star Trek. They're not even being subtle about it either. No, it's, it's ridiculous. He looks like the devil. He, I must admit, I did like his dress sense. That was the one thing I did come out of it going, oh, he's a, he's a I, good dress I can't sense. help thinking that that was the actor's suggestion yes because it's it's one of the things in the, the things in the film that are good are things with it yeah, i bet that wasn't robin hardy's idea because mm. it's it's just so sad because the wicker man is it is one of the horror greats and it is a fantastic film if you haven't seen it and i'm sorry that we've blown the ending and you hadn't didn't know what it was but to then make this and this is one of the worst films i've ever seen it's such a tragic fall from grace for Robin Hardy. Now, now, last time we recorded an episode, uh, you told me to limit the swearing. Am I allowed to swear this time? You are allowed to swear if it is a direct quote. This is a direct quote from my notes. No. Well, my what? mother is listening. Brace yourselves, but my notes literally just say, Steve wearing his f***ing hat. And that's just... <laughs> and In more ways than one. Well, this is something I noticed very early on. Here's the thing. One thing we see when they get to Scotland and they check into the hotel why on earth is her music video of all things on well I can I know it's part of the news thing it's, yes she does she does a concert in I think it's supposed to be Edinburgh but it's sort of a, a metropolitan area and after the after the gig that cuts back to the, the the presenter of the TV coverage because it's being broadcast live because she's such a big star Oh, and here's a, an ex, a example of the music that she used to do. And it's... You wouldn't play the whole music video, for starters, if you you'd do a clip. But she's like, it seems to be on for a very long time. Yeah. And it's awful. It's, it, the, it's really cheap looking. I mean, it's a very bare looking set of like a Western style bar. Three other people in there. I and, it's, and it's really boring bad pop music yeah. i mean even even by my sort of low opinion of most pop music it's really poor 
The other problem is that it's said a number of times in the film, and they really emphasise it in the book, that Beth Boothby, again, made-up name. <laughs> Everyone has really weird made-up names. Steve. Lachlan Morrison is the most normal name. That's, that sounds reasonable. An old gentleman. That's a weird name for Christopher Lee. Yeah. Mm. Imagine being called that when you're young. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the book says a number of times that she is a really amazing singer. That she has this extraordinary singing voice. And that when she prays before going to bed each night, she thanks God for the gift of her singing voice. And you can say that in a book, and that's fine. Because we can just imagine that she's got this, oh, this fantastic, beautiful singing voice. In the film, she can carry a tune... Yep. She's never off-key, and it doesn't sound auto-tuned in any way. It all sounds properly done, almost certainly dubbed later on, but that's fine. But, you know, I know people who aren't professional singers who can sing better than she can. Yeah, I thought she was okay. I didn't she's fine. She's fine, exactly. I mean, she's introduced singing in like a revival... Well, not really revivalist, but like a, a church meeting in Texas, basically just singing songs to the congregation. I thought, oh, okay, that's fine. Apparently she's doing well enough to get a limo, which... Yeah, well, well she's, <laughs> this, she's supposed to be a huge, like, on the level with Britney Spears type, in terms of success and fame, star. So, yeah, she has a limo. Okay, that, that fits. We're never given any justification as to why she is such a big star. No. And we see her music video with its terrible song, which is called Trailer Trash Love. And you're thinking, wow, this looks like it was made in someone's shed. I must admit, I have flicked around late of the evening uh, on the musical channels, as it were. Not the musical channel, that'd be interesting. No, the music channel. Country music television? There was... It's weird. It was like Irish. It was an Irish country and Western singer. The budget of that video was still better than what we saw in The Wicker Tree. Because at least he was walking around in a real place, sitting by a well... (laughs) <laughs> it's that was quite Irish. Yeah, it was. It was. But the thing is, it was exactly what it should have been for what it was. Did it look like the My Lovely Horse video from Father Ted? It looked like My Lovely Horse by, from Father Ted, but really poorly dubbed. Oh, that's a shame. And edited and sung. Well, what, I mean, not that it matters, but what was the song like? Was it was it pleasant? It was so bad, I can't remember a single note oh. of it. it. It was. <laughs> it was something like. I mean, the most you could ask for, really, is that it's, it's, you know, it's all right to listen to. Oh, I'm sitting by your well. I'm sitting by your well. Bye. Bye. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it. Yeah, and then he goes, that's it. That's, that's, that's the hidden track, but it's also the only track on the single. Yeah, it's just, it's a very long, it, that's the thing, it's an, it's an album and an album when the only song on the album is one song. That's very Aphex Twin. That's the sort of thing he'd do. That cheeky little tinker. It's conceptual. Yeah. It's still shorter than Philip Glass's silent track. But actually, just a reminder on that. Now, one of the main things I picked up on The Wicker Tree, was in The Wicker Man, it's linear. Very linear. Yes, it's, it's relatively straightforward. But with The Wicker Tree, you get these really odd little moments. The first one of which was when she's standing in the hotel room with the music video. It has this weird, like, her former self is standing there in the hotel. Yes. What on earth? Now, that, that was the moment when I was watching it when I thought, oh, it's going to be that standard of film. And I think I actually texted you at the time to say, WTF, uh, there's a hologram in this movie. And because the impression is that it's, 
suddenly she's because she's watching this on TV and she's trying pressing all the buttons on the remote control to turn it off. And suddenly this hologram appears in the corner of the room of herself from the video, singing and dancing in a slightly trashy way, but not that trashy, obviously, because it's you know. And I thought, did she just turn on like the hologram function on the TV? Is she Rimmer? She could. She might as well be. I mean, she's dead from the start. Yeah, as I felt but, on I mean, the inside. I think it's supposed to be like a hallucination that this this spectre of her past is following her. It sort of makes sense on that level, but it looks crap, <laughs> and it, and it's a weird thing to. But there's so many little extra things in the movie, like the talking raven, which make no sense. And it took me a very long time to identify whether it was a raven or a crow until Beth at the end goes, you and your raven, like that. Yeah. There's, thus speaks a scriptwriter who has never met another human being. Yes. And never, never trust a man wearing a cravat. Having arrived in Scotland, they find that... Um, or, sorry, having arrived with the, um, the Morrisons, Beth and Steve are startled, but not especially startled, to discover that they are pagans and they worship the goddess Sulis. And they're pretty open about it. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very cool with it. Which seems off in some way. They ought to be a bit more... There ought to be more conflict there, just so that there's something happening in the movie. Did, did you find when watching it that because it is directly called The Wicker Tree, because it isn't even called something else, the fact that you're anticipating from the get-go, when, when it more or less established, oh, there's these two outsiders coming to this small town, you instantly go... Right, okay. So this isn't going to end well. This is just all one big ominous pause until until the end, until when it all kicks off and they and they, they cork it. And so all the flashing lights are there from the get-go. Even when... De- uh, is it Della or Delia? I it's Della. It, Della promises that the country folk will hear them out. And I just felt... I just in my notes going, yeah, through screaming. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. It's... I mean, it's... It's almost deliberately subverting the the ideal of suspense in that the audience is not only a step ahead of the characters, we already know how the film's going to end. Yeah. And they do put a very, very, very slight twist on it, but not really changing the outcome. That's the thing. I must admit, we'll presumably go back to it later, Yeah. but that was the only bit of the film that actually surprised me. Whereas, oh, twist... And yet, in context, it would have to go like that. Because you know, because the inference is that Beth is going to be thrown at the wicker tree or something and burned to death. But they always planned to turn her into a waxwork. Yes. So what were they going to do? Were they going to pour the ashes into a mould? Exactly. There's, it's like it's convenient that she happened to actually get to that point and survive and escape at that point. So that could happen because what they just burn the wicker tree and go home. What's the point? In yeah, that? I mean, I mean, I mean, it's part of a ritual, but there doesn't seem to be anything more to it than that. It's like having a big bonfire while all cavorting around it, dressed as bad extras from an early Mad Max film. Do, do they? I mean, do you reckon that had she not turned up at that point, do you reckon they all poo out a bit of Steve and throw it at the tree? I expect they probably would have. I mean, once you've set it going, you don't want to waste it. Oh, so the whole thing of, oh, they won't find his body. What? So they ate the bones as well, did they? It's nonsense. Well, they could have given the bones to a dog or the raven. <laughs> Quite a lot of bones. Well, you know, ravens, ravens like dead bodies. 
They're always they're always hanging around gibbets. You know, gibbets. Yeah, you know that people that you hang people from. Oh, I thought I thought you meant I think you meant giblets. Gallows, sorry, or giblets. Well, they always hanging around giblets as well. Around Christmas, that's, that's their starter. Yeah, mm. Merry Merry Christmas. That's my favourite part of the my favourite part of Christmas dinner is the organs. Oh my, that would be great. Imagine if you imagine if you owned a Victorian themed butchers, you could call it gibbets and giblets. That'd be great. Gib gibbets, gibbets. Is that what you said? Gibbets, gibbets. What's g- gibbons? Gibbons and giblets. gibbons. You can't eat a gibbon. <laughs> you can try. <laughs> it would fight you. It's dead. But you want it fresh. Well, I suppose that's what happened with Steve. Well, yeah, he's fresh. I, I, he's, he's certainly getting fresh with um, the uh, worst Scottish person in the world. And I also like the fact that when it came to that scene where Steve's standing there going, right, I've, I've got here. Uh, <laughs> okay, oh, I'm here now. Yeah, now no. what? <laughs> yeah, and they're all taking their clothes off. They say, oh, why are you taking your clothes off? So, well, why do you think, mate? I mean, you wouldn't assume straight away they're going to eat me. You'd assume something else, but which I'm not going to say because this is a family podcast. Is it? We're watching the Wicker Tree. Anyone yeah. who's watching the Wicker Tree is pretty depraved. We are. Don't talk about me like that. I'm pretty depraved. I know. Well, I well, I feel I feel. I've seen your house. <laughs> well, I've seen yours. Um, but no, I felt pretty dirty after watching the Wicker Tree. I felt I felt I felt like I'd done something wrong. I enjoyed it. I mean the. In, in choosing in choosing the Wicked Tree for this podcast, originally we chose it before either of us had seen it. Yes, which was maybe a bit presumptuous because we were assuming it was going to be good. <laughs> I thought it was going to be good, even if it was bad. I thought it was going to be good. I must admit, it's not what I watch again, but I I want to watch it with someone else who was a devout Wicker Man fan. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but. In terms of the chronology, did the Wicker Man remake come out before or after The Wicker Tree? Oh, before. I believe it came out in 2006. Do you suspect, given the fact that by that point, I believe we already knew that he already wanted to do a sequel either way by 2006? Because I actually know he did, because I went to the Curzon screening of The Wicker Man when it was one of the anniversary celebrations. And they were talking about, oh, what's... They asked Robin Hardy in the Q&A at the Curzon, what's your view on the forthcoming remake? Or I believe the remake had just come out, perhaps. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, and he started talking about, oh, Cowboys for Christ, etc. So do you reckon because the remake was so shoddy and not particularly good or even necessary, do you reckon by the time The Wicker Tree came out, that there was no real expectation or high expectation for what could be brought to the table that would be considered new, even though it was, of course, Robin Hardy going back to it. Well, I think any expectation would have been linked to that because it's it's the original director. It's the man who knew how to make that great thriller. And with the remake, you have Neil LeBute, who's... It just depresses me even to think about him because his work is so misanthropic and so hateful. And the remake of The Wicker Man is... It's both incompetent and hateful. So are you saying that this is what we're going to watch this time next year for... Jesus Christ, please no. (laughs) Is that your Edward Woodward impression? Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. No. Yeah, but ex- where he was really depressed about being killed. <laughs> He's like, well, oh, you just reminded me, there's a bit at the end of The Wicker Tree where Lolly breaks the news to Beth about Steve's eating, Steve's uh, sacrifice, as it were, and the, her line read, Beth's line read of, 
they killed him. Oh, they killed him? Like, oh, really? Oh, oh, man. Yes. Yeah. And I just... I just uh, from that I was just okay. Uh, all right, okay. <laughs> I think I think I'm done here. There yeah. are some there are some real deficiencies in some of the acting ability. I don't want to be too mean. I don't want to be mean to people who maybe haven't had the time and experience to really learn their craft. So Britannia Nickel, who plays Beth, it does say introducing. Her. So she's clearly not that experienced an actress, and I imagine that she may have been hired for her singing ability. She seems very sweet. Uh, I won't deny that. Yeah, I think you know, given time, given a bit of experience, she could definitely make a perfectly decent living from acting. But but probably more singing. But probably more singing. I mean, I I don't I don't want to be mean. But well, we're saying she's a good singer. That's not harsh. We're just yeah, saying she's not yeah, as good as an actress. She's not that. She's not that bad an actress. I mean, part of, part of the problem is that her character is such a moron. I must admit, it is in the script, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it, I at, mean the, at the end of the, the hunting lodge scene, felt like that's the hunting lodge scene where you've got Steve and Beth, and Steve sort of turning around to Beth, saying, "Oh, I'm not really interested anymore." And I, you know, I'm not interested in Jesus, and, but, but 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 he sort of still is because the script doesn't make any sense. And I was very very easily swayed in a lake by Lolly earlier, and that whole scene, especially the way it was framed and the way it was shot, and, and just the way it ended with her cliche of collapsing onto the bed in, into the pillow in tears. That was like watching an audition tape. And it was, there was nothing about that at all that was in any way original. Oh, sorry, I'm getting on a tangent because I was just... And the music throughout this, the original music, bugged the crap out of me, I have to say. Because it was pointless. If you look at the Wicker Man, the original Wicker Man, a lot of the music in that works for the context. Even the music that is happening, say, during Edward Woodward's montage of searching the houses and so forth, it all intrinsically, thematically ties in with the music that you heard played in the pub. Yes. There, um, the, the music of the original film is superb. It's, it is almost like a musical. Yeah. Because there are so many original songs that are incorporated within the fiction of the story. But the incidental score combines with it so it forms a, a almost like a symphonic whole one it, could say perhaps it's relevant and it's necessary but here it's a weird mishmash i mean it's like it's all been drawn from like stock cds of oh, this this yeah we want this sort of mood in this scene but yeah we'll put we'll put the real music in later on there was i think there's some in my notes i'm just sort of scrolling down here because I, there was a number of notes where i kept on going off about the music because i found that it was just so unnecessary um that's that's a key thing i've noticed in a lot of terrible films is overusing music yeah um and not not letting the audience draw their own sort of emotional conclusions from the scene the music has to push you in that direction like the very final shot of the movie which we've already spoiled effectively where it's um it's months later and beth is now a dummy sitting in a room whilst clive russell as beam is doing the hoovering he's doing the hoovering around her because because i mean there are some points where the film is trying to go for comedy and you think well in like yeah this is the human sacrifice from yeah i've got to go in there and do the hoovering in theory that could be funny but it's done in such an odd, flat way. But the, yes, the final shot then pushes in on Beth's preserved body, and the music swells to da 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 da, and it's this really melodramatic chord. I think, like, calm down. Yeah, yeah, we, it, yeah, she's dead, it's, and uh, yeah, that's terrible. 
You don't need to. You don't need to like, punch the audience in the face. We knew this was happening from yeah. the moment that they were from the crap. beginning of the movie. From the time we picked the DVD up in the shop, yeah, and it had the picture of the burning tree on it. We knew that they were not long for this world. And even when I watched this on Amazon Prime, the description that comes with it is that leads to their doom. More or less, I think it says in the like. So they really don't care about maintaining any level of suspense. It's not. I mean, even John dies at the end is still unpredictable. Well, yeah, I've heard that because you don't know why, and apparently that's full of weird, bizarre tangents. Exactly. Yeah, and so is this, but they're they're just nonsensical, mm. like the long shot of a man looking at a buffet, which you get at one point. Yeah, it's a long sequence of a man just putting together a plate of food from a buffet, which doesn't mean anything. We were talking about the music. Steve wanders about aimlessly in the garden to country and western lift music. <laughs> when, when this is during a time where, you know, you've got this extravagant ball and she's Beth is all dressed up and they're dancing to traditional music from the looks of it because we don't know, because we don't hear any of it. We hear this stupid, bloody country and western music. Yeah. And it's sort of Steve reflecting pointlessly in the garden in the dark. It's like, why don't you just go and sit in the hotel room and watch television like a normal person? Again, it's it's trying to sort of make it full it full with local colour because there's this there's a ball and Beth is dancing with all the the young eligible men in the village, and it's supposed to tie into the whole thing about her being the queen of the May. And given that I vaguely know the story of the queen of the May, I thought, oh right, so draw, drawing finger across throat, yeah, because it's. So blindingly obvious. Flashing lights. Flashing lights, exactly. Flashing lights reading, You're going to die. Yeah. Now, one of the stars of the original film, the original Wicker Man, is Christopher Lee. Well, hey. The legendary Sir Christopher Lee. Oh. A hugely underrated actor, I think, as well as being a great movie star. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Um, oh, he'll be back. He'll, he'll be back. He's always back. But when the, um, the film was originally being put together in the early 2000s, I think it was, and even uh, with this version, uh, the intention was that Sir Christopher would play Sir Lachlan. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he had a slight accident on his previous film, The Resident, which meant that, for health reasons, he wasn't able to, able to play that role, and Graham McTavish was cast in his place. But actually, the, uh, the other cast I thought was really unusual. Uh, Lady Della was going to be Joan Collins... Now, does she act anymore? It's a while since she's been at anything. I could see Joan Collins playing the role of Della in terms of the scripts. It, it's all kind of ballsy. She's very much more forthcoming than Lachlan, Sir Lachlan from the get-go in terms of her characterization. She's quite happy to go forth and get involved with Beth and so forth. She's much more confident than Sir Lachlan in terms of the way she she's approaches Beth and Steve at the, from the get-go. Yes. And... Then you consider Sir Christopher Lee playing the role of Sir Lachlan Morrison, and you think those lines would never work in his voice, in his performance. No, I can only imagine that he was involved with the project as a favour to Robin Hardy, because he's famously been very, very complimentary about The Wicker Man. He's said many times it's the best film he ever did, which is almost certainly true, and to do a, you know, a role in this for probably not much money that's the kind of thing that he would do because he was all class certainly even if the script was crap well <laughs> here's the thing it kind of works with Sir Lachlan Morrison saying certain lines so you know it'll be fun watching you trying to convert us heathens 
and things like that. Or, or uh, oh, oh, I'm a bit like Mr. Burns in The oh, Simpsons. Oh. <laughs> what on earth? There's a Simpsons reference in there, The Wicked Tree. Oh, there's, there's one deliberate one. There's another, which is probably unintentional. Okay. But did give me the biggest laugh of the movie. So I just wanted to point out, actually, the, the book, which I have here in hardback, no less, oh God. Um, and which, when I bought it, had never been read, has a quote on it by Christopher Lee on the front and back covers, and it's the same one. He's des- he describes it as erotic, romantic, comic, and horrific enough to loosen the bowels of a bronze statue. None of which is true. Although that, that line is particularly... I mean, that's an illustration of class, isn't it? That's a good line. Yeah, I mean... Not for this book, but it's a good book. line. If he said that about something that wasn't terrible, then I would have believed him. Although the same way you know, Stephen King gave his endorsement to the, uh, to the, uh, the Evil Dead, oh. which I do not like. Well, he also gave his endorsement to Hannibal, which I adore the series, to say. Oh, yes. Well, the series is good, but... Um, oh, God. Uh, I was going to say The Shining, but I can understand why he doesn't like The Shining because it takes out a lot of what's in the book. Well, didn't he do a TV? Two he did. He did. A, he did a, a remake for television. I think 1997 with um, Stephen Bauer and Rebecca, Rebecca De Mornay. And that was approved by Stephen King. He wrote the script. Yeah, he actually wrote the adaptation for it, and it was directed by Mick Jackson, who's done a lot of his uh, TV adaptations for American TV, like um, the version of The Stand. Hmm. Which I thought was good. I like that. I like The Stand. I have a fun story about The Stand. Go on. Um, it was shown on British TV, I remember, over the summer, I think, in 1996. And uh, it was, it's, it's because it's a very long book, it was four installments, four 90-minute episodes. And I watched the first three with my sisters. And we were watching the last one together. And then the last half hour, there was something else on another channel. And because... It was 1996. I had to go to another room to watch a different television to watch that. And when I came back again, and I saw, how did it end? And spoilers for the, sh- for the stand. They said, oh, um, God's hand comes down out of heaven and sets off a nuclear bomb and kills everybody. I don't know. Come on. What really happened? Come on. Come on. Don't be silly. No, that's what really happened. That's how the series ends. And that's pretty much how the book ends. God sets off a nuclear bomb with his finger and everyone dies. And, yeah, written in a blizzard of cocaine, I imagine. Well, the, my favourite part of the entire stand television miniseries, mini-movie, is... It's not really mini, it's huge. Well, it's, it's, it's six hours. So it's, it's basically a serial. Well, it's the end of one of, the, one of the parts where the elderly woman who is kind of the representative of the good side yes. stands there and goes, Help us, Lord. Help us to stand. Oh, and say then, the title, win a prize. Yep. So the wicker tree is said, Jack. For, for no, of course, of course, the one person spouting decent poetry and prose is the one who has a stutter. He is mentally ill. Is uh, he? Yes. The book goes into that in detail. But <laughs> like with a line, he is mentally ill. <laughs> that's, that's it. In he the had. I, I. I probably should have gone back and checked but he and his family went through some sort of awful trauma and his brothers died and he was left disadvantaged well i'm I'm trying to think of sort of the the nicest way of saying it because it's really not his fault and the film is it's i mean everyone in the village is very tolerant of him generally because Mm. it's like oh look at that look at that moron over there playing with his birds covering himself in peanut butter 
Well, that, well, that's, do that. No, but but that's that's the sort of thing they'd say about him if they were mean. But I'd say, oh, you know, you know, be nice to him because you know, you know, you know how he is. Yeah. So everyone's friendly to him, and he's got his pet talking bird. Well, what I found odd in terms of characterization, we were considering if certain things were played for laughs, and Clive Russell as Bean, the, the butler, the servant, yes, the manservant, factotum, is he? Well, I heard that, but I've never seen anything to substantiate it. Well, Mr. Clive Midori Russell is... That's a reference for still game fans. All of his moments are for comedic purposes, even to the point where it escalates very quickly when he is about to inject Beth and Beth cuts his box open. Oh, just the one. Just, yes. Just the one. Yes, she, um, she partially unmans him because, with the piece of broken glass. And then he's he's operated on the kitchen table by the cook. In I just I can't help repeatedly thinking of the Russ Abbott show. It's so the tone is so odd. It is very strange. And initially, I thought she was genuinely putting cold meat to help the wound. But then I looked again, and actually, it was a red rag with with ice. In it. Oh, I see, like an ice pack. I thought it was just steaks or something, initially. I thought just, just, just to fill in the gap. Well, you know how, like, <laughs> you know that kind of standard thing of, oh, they've got a bruise, they've got a black eye, so let's put a steak on it or whatever. Yes. I, I thought it was that kind of logic. I thought it was, oh, let's, let's put a whole lot of mince. On. I thought, well, maybe turn it into a meatball and then use that as a, a prosthetic. Some substitute. Yeah. 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 I, I thought it was, oh, let's put a whole lot of lamb mince on his, on his testicles. Well, you know, with the pagans, maybe that's part of it. Mint sauce has great therapeutic properties. Well, you know what? If I was an actual pagan and I, I was sitting there watching this film, I think, do, do they think they we're, we're just making it up as we go <laughs> along? Because it really felt like that for most most yeah, of the time. I mean, it's it's so it's so shoddy. We have to mention the, the sex scene. Well, the several sex scenes, pointless sex scenes. The character of the policeman. Orlando. That was a, see that you have to remember this is a podcast. That was a fantastic head and shoulders and face shrug. Uh, very, very partridge-esque. I thought. Well, I, I. That's the only way I can really react. I think. It's ver- just, so, so well, I don't know. <laughs> Verbally, is it's translated as? I know, but uh, the character is called. His name is Orlando. In the book, his full name is Detective Constable Orlando Furioso. Oh, for. F- <laughs> it's just, I mean, yeah, it's just, it, you just see this over and over again. What are they, what are you doing? This is supposed to be for grown-ups. The, the intention is that he's um, Glaswegian-Italian, like Armando Iannucci or Peter Capaldi. So, okay, so you've got an Italian name. You don't have to sound like you're a cartoon. I did not get that at all. Well, he's referred to as Orlando, and he looks Mediterranean, so I thought, oh, okay, he's, he's Scots-Italian, fine. Um, he's also having an affair with the local uh, good time girl, shall we say? Town bike. That's not fair. But, but accurate, because even they say in the film, oh, here's one of the latest conquests. I'm trying to think of a way of saying it that doesn't have connotations of denigration. I thought I was being fair. <laughs> and she's potentially the only empathetic character. She's the only one who shows concern. Yes. Uh, well, Beth does a bit, but Beth's such a idiot that yeah. it's she she even even at one point beth goes oh maybe i'm being dumb yeah yep yep 
yes, there's no are. maybe about that. Mm. But early on, Lolly, as her name is, she's having sex with Orlando, and the scene is subtitled. Yes, what another? Yes, and it does seem like with that weird 3D hologram bit, and with the, a, a sequence where Steve turns around and Beth's covered in fruit, and yes, well, including a pineapple, pineapple. And the subtitle scene. It just seems like Robin Hardy's discovering the 21st century going, oh, we can do this now. He's trying out all the options in his editing package. Exactly. And there is no reason for the subtitles at all. The only reason I could think of is that, um, well, it's just the actress playing Lolly is Honeysuckle Weeks, who... I like her. She's I wouldn't good. say she's a big star, but she is notable. She's starred in the series Foils War. Mm-hmm. which is everyone's parents' favourite TV show, mm-hmm. which is in a fairly entertaining um, crime series set in World War II. And she speaks in her normal accent in that, which is very plummy, south of England, home counties. And in here she's Scottish, obviously, and her speaking voice in her Scottish accent is absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. It's revenge for all the times that Sean Connery couldn't be bothered. I genuinely hope that... Obviously, I've only been in this... This is the second episode I've been in of Cinema Limbo, but I genuinely hope that somehow you've crowbarred a Sean Connery reference into every single episode. Well, we're going to now. There you go. <laughs> it's too late. Part, part of the, the plan of um, turning Beth into a shot window dummy is that they want to keep Orlando out of the way, obviously. The, the, the book has a whole subplot about Orlando having been sent there by Glasgow CID to investigate a cult. And in the film, he's, I believe, in three scenes, one of which involves him wearing a donkey head, and at that point he just happens to just say the one clunky line, Oh, oh tell me about this cult that I'm investigating. And it's... <laughs> yeah. I, I think yes. I actually wrote it down, because it was so absurd. Uh, oh, you said you were going to tell me about that cult that's been reported around here. Yes. That's the actual line. Wow. But to keep him out of the way... And this is, again, this is, uh, bizarrely, this is a running plot thread in the book which devotes several pages to it. He and Lolly are going to have sex seven times in one evening. Wow. Yeah, I mean, well, nice work if you can get it. <laughs> I might sound very sight and soundy here, but I would say that the way that sex is portrayed in The Wicker Man, the original, is that it's contextually central. Whereas, yes, very much so. Yeah, because... Um, Sergeant Howie is a virgin and he's deliberately saving himself for his wedding night. And part of the resolution of the film is that the, the perfect sacrifice that they want has to be a virgin. So it makes perfect sense within the movie. In The Wicker Tree, it's implied that neither Beth nor Steve are virgins, but it's grown back. They've, they sort of, they've pledged themselves to each other with the silver ring thing, which they keep referring to, even though there is an actual name for it. It's the promise ring. You know, I know that. I didn't even need to look it up. Mm. And I'm not a Christian. I must say about the sex scene in The Wicked Tree, which involves Lolly and Steve. So Lolly... The first or the second one? The one in the water. The one in the... Oh, sorry, Lolly and Steve, Yes. Adam, Adam and Eve, Adam and Steve, Lolly and Steve. So Steve, you know, gets off, gets off his horse and sees Lolly, and she's topless in the. Well, she's naked. But we only see. Oh yeah, we, yeah, yeah. It doesn't go full on. The water isn't that clear. No, it doesn't have to be because then we end up with over ten seconds of Steve's hairy ass for no reason, whilst he's just very slowly getting in. 
with it. It really didn't take much for him to break his vows that he made to the woman he loves and to God for a quick bit of Rumpy Pumpy. Two lines that indicate, as a character, he's an idiot. The first line is, I can't believe that this is for real. That's not something people say in real life. Nope. And then, and then completely, like, not only is he just completely backing down from his beliefs, yeah. he just goes, oh, what the hell? Which, for someone... Don't say hell. For someone who's so prim and proper up to this point, he goes, oh, that's sod it. It's a recurring thing that, although they have these beliefs and these, these um, commitments of faith, they either don't seem to take them too seriously or they're constantly on the verge of breaking them, which reduces the suspense because there's less opposition. Because in the original, Sergeant Howie is very strong and secure and he's really fighting temptation. Here they are constantly almost having sex with each other or other people or passers-by. There's a scene where Steve goes to the local pub with some of the locals for a friendly drink. Fine. Yeah. And he, has a, he carries around a deck of cards and he recites the, the, de- the deck of cards routine. Right up to Jack in the cards. Like, they could have just stopped that halfway through the demonstration. Yes. But it does the whole thing, word for word. If you've never heard the deck of cards routine, it's, it's the idea that a soldier doesn't carry a hymn or a prayer book, but he carries his deck of cards because that, remi- in, in different ways, reminds him of all the stories from the Bible and that kind of thing. And, it's, and the original is quite clever. But here, it's just ripped off word for word for no reason. I mean, you can take a Bible on a plane. The inference is he carries his deck of cards... Like almost as if he can gamble, and he does. He, it's a he does a he does a magic trick, which appears to be genuine magic, rather than sleight of hand. And oh, so he's got Christian magic powers. Genuine magic. Yeah, but I would like to also point out that by the end of the routine, he does turn around and get like literally oh, the entire pub is watching him do it. And I thought that would never happen in a spoons. No. That wouldn't happen here, where we're sitting now. It wouldn't happen. Like if you if you ripped out some cards right now and did that, not every like people are turning around occasionally because they hear me shouting into a microphone. But generally, pe- people wouldn't turn around and go, "Oh, he's doing that routine." If he was doing magic, if he was doing like card tricks for his friends, then people might turn around and watch. But he's not. He's just de- he's dealing out these cards and talking about how it reminds him of the Bible and Jesus and and the books of the Old Testament. You know, it's a nice story. But it's not very interesting for passers-by. I, I'd like to think that something was going on in the background of that scene, like if we watched it from the perspective of the blokes at the bar. So the blokes at the bar, they go up to the barman and they say, oh, you got any pork scratchings, for example? And they go, oh, we haven't got any of those. But uh, if you have a look at that, you see that American with the stupid hat over there? If you wait a bit. A couple of days. <laughs> tuck in. And so I'd like to think the reason they're all staring at him by the time he finishes the routine is because word by that point has got round that that's their feast. In they're a all of licking days. their lips and getting out their knives and forks. And, and, and when they're arriving in town as well, that's the amazing bit. Like, you know, the, like that last trilogy of Only Fools and Horses episodes where because the remaining cast are kind of dying off, they put them all in one place at any given time. It was a bit like that. All the villagers are standing there by a bush waiting for them to drive past. Because, oh... Let's segregate them into one corner. <laughs> Such nonsense. There is another bit where, where they're, when they're in the bar, when Steve, Steve is talking to the, uh, the others, and he's talking about his father, and he mentions that his father once took a pot shot at him. He says, oh, maybe he thought I was Godzilla or something. What? 
I don't understand. I mean, maybe Robin Hardy doesn't know who Godzilla is, but he doesn't wear a hat. He's taller. And he has a very distinctive accent. But he does have God in the name. That's true. Do you reckon that was it? He went, oh, it's, oh, that must be to do. Because <laughs> he's heavenly look. Bearing in mind, literally the first shot we see of Steve is taken from an upwards view where he, he's got clouds and the blue skies behind him. Filmed in Scotland, obviously, to, to disguise the fact that there are, you know, there's no desert there. In a saintly way. Mm. Well, thanks be to Godzilla. Well... I should also say, in terms of, we're talking about the villagers as well, that it's an ensemble piece without an ensemble. They keep introducing all of these characters that, what, we're meant to have some kind of connection with? Yes, like the, the, the women who are making the, um, the, May, the May Queen dress. Yeah. And they're in one scene, I think, mm. and they're all introduced, and then we never see them again. Yeah. And for characters who are just in one scene, okay, fine, they serve a plot function. But there's actually time made up for them all to introduce themselves and say their names and then nothing because it doesn't matter. And even Jack with his, oh, the wicker tree, the wicker tree element. And the, the, oh, and another thing with the, uh, you know, we've had the, sub, we've had the subtitle scene. We've had the hologram scene. We, we have the Beth covered in fruit scene. We've, we've had the green screen scene with oh, Christopher yes, Lee. With, oh, yes, we, oh, yes, we ought to mention that in a, in a moment. What, what were you going to say? But also, point of view shots from the Raven's perspective. I've written down Raven's eye view, where we have we see from the Raven's eye view, and it's shot with a fisheye lens, and there's no reason for it. No. Again, it's, a, you know, it's everything except the star wipe. Are you sure there wasn't one? Or if there, if, there, if there had been a star wipe iris out at the end, and to the end credits, I would have laughed my head off. Well, with that music, it would have been totally out, kind of right up to a big old clay face, you know. Kind of, yeah. Whoop. Yeah. I mean, good, good grief. Charlie Brown. But yes, we find that Christopher Lee does appear in the movie. He has a cameo credited as Old Gentleman. And yeah, uh, the morning of uh, May Day... Uh, so Lachlan and Lady Della are having breakfast and Della asks him about the sincerity of his belief and weirdly his response is actually quoted on the back of the book he says this if I am a rabbi, Jehovah is my God if I am a mullah, Allah the merciful is he if I am a Christian, Jesus is my Lord millions of people worldwide worship the sun here in Tresuk, which is the name of the village I believe the old religion of the Celts fits our needs at this time. Isn't that all you can ask of a religion? And then he turns to one side and looks at a really shit painting of Christopher Lee. Doesn't look like him. And then we go into a flashback. Which also, another excuse to fit, squeeze in. Before we even get to the flashback scene, it kind of goes... Yeah, know, the wibbly... Visually. And we, and we, it's everything except the harp. Visually wibbles. Um, and we see young Lachlan played by another awful actor. Looks nothing like Who him. looks nothing like He him. should have been bald and wearing the same clothes, but younger. That's what it should have been. It should have been... It should have been like a little baby, but with a beard. Yeah, should have been exactly the same look as the older one, but with bald and, and the goatee and, and, the, and the clothes. Exactly, should have been exactly the same clothes. And um, he's painting a picture of the bridge in the middle of town, and he's being watched by the old gentleman, played by Christopher Lee, who tells him about the old gods and that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, it's 
completely pointless and perfunctory, and it's solely to get Christopher Lee's name on the poster. There is no, there is no reason for it other than that. I mean, it's it's, it's pretty standard practice in low-budget filmmaking to get a name actor in for just a couple of hours for one scene, and then you can put the name on the poster. And it's for perfectly legitimate commercial reasons, and that's fine. But you have to give them something to do. You can't just have a completely unrelated, pointless flashback that looks like it was added in post-production because it's just insulting. They might as well just have the picture of the, the painting on the wall say oh ah see oh well in that case maybe there's some connection to um lord summer isle from the wicker man maybe sir Lachlan is his protege if the painting had been of christopher lee's character yes. rather than being a picture of christopher lee as he was at the time the film was made that would have made more sense they could probably got away with that and that would have been a nice almost like the tv series of fargo the way that cleverly connects different um Coen Brothers stories together into one universe mm. it could sort of by extension be part of the Wicker Man story but they don't do that Robin Hardy doesn't do that because he wants to have Christopher Lee in the movie but not in a role that requires him to do anything other than turn up to a small studio probably in London stand in front of a green screen and look at a, a bad actor painting a crap picture probably at his house apparently he lived in a flat in Mayfair because of course he would. He's Sir Christopher Lee. Where else God is he going to live? Swindon? Yeah. He live where he, where he live where he bloody well wants. He's Christopher Lee. Yeah. He lives in a coffin. Oh. Well, he did at the time. Now he... Um, he lived in a coffin. Now he died in a coffin. He didn't actually die in a coffin. Because that would be convenient. Yeah, they just... Well, <laughs> they, have to, they have to bury it. Just close it. This is very disrespectful. <laughs> they would have to bury it, though. They could just leave it. He, he would laugh at this. There would be complaints sooner or later. Oh... And also, I sh- sorry, I'm, I'm looking at my notes. I mean, I know we keep on kind of leaping about, but um, also... Linearity is not the sort of strong point. I wouldn't worry. No. And then, in capital letters, another scene with Orlando, donkey head, in brackets, and Lolly, a very clunky and out-of-nowhere exhibition of that cult, followed by weird shot of ambulance going by for no reason. Now, that's the Simpsons reference. Right. We need to, we need to sort of jump back a little bit to explain. The reason why... They want to sacrifice people. It does. There is actually a reason. It does. It does connect together in a fairly sort of rubbish children's TV way, but it does work in some sense. Lachlan Morrison's wealth is from a nuclear power station, the Nuada nuclear power station, named for the Celtic goddess of the sun. Of course, I, I believe. I think that's correct. Please don't burn me. And. It's vaguely alluded to in the film, not very well, there's more detail in the book, that waste or waste products in some way have been getting into the water supply. Therefore, the townspeople, or the male townspeople, are infertile. And the sacrifice is to persuade the gods to make the town fertile again so they can have children. Because there's a running thing which they mention in the film, there aren't any children. Well, there's one child and he's about 11. And he's rubbish. At, well, cut them some slack. It's really like a local kid. So, oh no, not the actor. They're just the whole. Oh, the, yeah, the setup is just silly. But Sir Lachlan does say, "I suppose they think of me as being like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons." And he goes into the in the book. There are several paragraphs about how The Simpsons is his favourite TV show. <laughs> wow, really? And yeah, it's it's mind bending because of how 
clunky and badly thought out it is. Oh, yes, he'd watch The Simpsons and he'd chuckle along with Mr. Burns. He knows he's supposed to be the villain, but he'd, he'd identify with him all the same. Think, why don't you have an editor to cut this out? Or a blog where you can write these sporadic thoughts that aren't anything to do with the book. I know. I or mean, the story. But we have the, we have the, the second sex scene between Lolly and Orlando. And they're going for seven times in one night. And as they're, as they're going for the seventh time, Orlando starts screaming. And we cut to the outside of the... Because the police station is also Orlando's house. And in a small village, fine. But his bed appears to be in the front office. Yeah. It's like... It's Just like a fold-out next yeah. to the desk. No, it's, it's a big wooden double bed. It, it's nicer than my, my own bed. Well, you've got a big wooden double bed? I've got a double bed. Not that I like to brag. Um, but we cut to the outside of the house and then as, as he's screaming and then fast cut to an ambulance racing down the road which is pure Simpsons it's like Homer saying oh I don't think anything could possibly go cut to ambulance uh, are we officially saying that the wicker tree is directly influenced by the Simpsons well yeah, well, yeah I mean there's a direct reference I would say you know, that's indisputable um, but it's more that they're putting stuff in that they don't realise the Simpsons has already done as a gag Simpsons, Simpsons did it do you reckon the entire film, though, is, is a direct homage to The Simpsons? I would much rather The Simpsons did a homage to The Wicker Man. That would be, I would, that'd be good. I'd like to see that. Years ago, I did start writing a goon show parody of The Wicker Man. And I got rid about ten minutes worth of material, and then I got bored and did something else. But I think there's a lot... You, you could definitely twist it into a humorous story. And there, there's enough humour here that you think, are they trying to do this as a joke? What's 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 the underlying thesis? thesis? What point are you trying to make? Because ultimately, the point seems to be well, you know, conflicting religions. How about that? Well, which is exactly what the first one said, but it said it in an intelligent, nuanced way. It said, "Well, faith can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. It depends on the way it's interpreted in in real world terms." Which I I agree with. This movie is oh, you see religion, ooh, from the get go. Yeah. And even then as well, in terms of the humour, you've got... We're saying about Clive Russell. This is a direct line said by Beam, the character played by Clive Russell. Where is my bowl of eyes? And written after that, I've written, oh, for f**k's sake. I wrote down where is my bowl of eyes as well, because apparently he's lent it to somebody. Yes, that's why he goes to eat, because as he's busy preparing to um, turn Beth into a museum exhibit, he needs to get um, fake eyes, because... um, Obviously, the, the, the real eyes are going to decay. That's nice, isn't it? And he apparently has a bowl full of glass eyes. But someone's borrowed them. So he has to go into town to find the person who's borrowed all the glass eyes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, again, <laughs> why? What? I've literally written underneath... My, my next note underneath that swear was, I have no connection to any of this. No, that's the problem. I mean, there's only one character in the movie that you can feel any empathy for, and that's Lolly, who is... She's conflicted. She's initially part of the whole thing, but she actually legitimately falls in love with Steve and tries to stop him from being sacrificed. I wouldn't say it was legitimate, because anyone well, with any sense would know that Steve's an idiot and, and really has no... He has no morals. He's, he, he, he's easily swayed, and even then... He doesn't listen to any what anyone says. No. But even so, I mean, it's, it's partly bad writing. Well, it's entirely bad writing. Yes. 
but she she feels genuine affection for him, shall we say, like a pet. Yeah. And she tries to help him and save him from being killed. So there is there is conflict there within her character, and that makes it there is a spark of interest there, which there isn't anywhere else because all the other characters are flat and and well, I wouldn't say entirely dull. Some of them are just weird, and that makes them interesting. But she's the only one who feels like she's remotely a human being. When Steve goes off and ignores her to go towards as part, as part of the riding of the laddie to go towards his death to the in the. Uh, ruins of the castle. Yeah, you, like you feel a bit sorry for her. But you never sorry for him. You're like, good, keep going. No, he's in it. He's he's running straight towards his own death, and having been, having been warned that something terrible will happen. She even cut into his saddle so it would fall off, so he'd get off and wouldn't get back on again. But he decides to ride bareback because he's a dumb cowboy, as he literally says at one. Yeah, point. and he's still with his bloody hat on. Bloody hat. I bet he doesn't even take it off when he's in the bath. Something I should also say as well is that... So she gets pregnant. She has a baby. Yes. But we see her have sex with Orlando at least seven times and Steve the once. So what's the implication that it is Steve's anyway, like it's done up to be at the end? Yes, given that Orlando is supposed to be from outside the community. I mean, this is it always so isolated. It's really not. It's really not. Stop talking rubbish. You can think about this in, in real world terms. You've got a rich guy running the village. Invest in the town, set up business, bring people in. That can refresh the gene pool. You know, if that's an issue, there are, way, there are ways of doing this that make more sense than luring an American pop star and turning her into a waxwork. And For eating f- sake. <laughs> eating her boyfriend. And eating her boyfriend. The, I mean, the one thing that I wrote down, as far as I can see, that actually does have some intelligence is eating the boyfriend, a parody of the Eucharist. I thought eating the boyfriend when he's when Sir Lachlan's spitting and shouting at the sun. I thought again about Mr. Burns blocking out the sun. <laughs> Is that another direct reference to The Simpsons? Oh, it could well be. I mean, four minutes of credits, by the way. Four minutes of end credits. Yeah, I noticed that when I was watching it the first time. The, the credits are scrolling very slowly. Just to just to get it over the uh, hour and a half mark, I think, because it yeah. is about one hour and thirty six, I think. Yes, it's. I mean, there shouldn't be this kind of paranoia about short about feature films being too short, because I think that, I think it was the great critic Roger Ebert who said films should be as long as they need to be. So you can have Lawrence of Arabia that's three and three quarter hours long because it needs to be that long, or Primer, the great underrated micro budget sci fi movie, is I think an hour and ten minutes, mm. and that's fine because that's how long it needs to be. If you if you've made this film and it's an hour twenty five, that's fine. That's how long it needs to be. I mean, it doesn't need to be anything at all. It shouldn't even have been made. But, you know, you don't need to stretch out the credits. I mean, credit everyone needs to be credited. Do it at a sensible speed. And the opening credits last forever as well. But they actually run over the action. So it doesn't really notice. With that in mind, do you think it ends a bit... Like, there's a month... I mean, most of the scenes were entirely unnecessary anyway. But in terms of the fact that the moment when Beth pushes Sir Lachlan into the wicker tree and it goes on fire and then they all just walk off yeah they just sort of the villagers just sort of wander around oh well that's it for another year and so then they get the one kid in, in the area to go 
Oh, can you do, do you mind just doing us a favour? Oh, no, no, yeah, you come out. You come out after curfew. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, um, just just a favour. We'll give you some sweets or something. Can you just lure this American? If you, I mean, if you happen to see her, because obviously there's a, there's no chance. There's, 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 we don't we don't know where she's going to be going after this. Yeah, I mean, there's a. I mean, this is acres of wood and and terrain and so forth. Yeah. So you know, just on the off chance she happens to walk in your direction, can you just lead her into the woods? We'll we'll be waiting for no for no real reason. We'll just be standing there for a good few hours because it's quite dark. Uh, it gets dark suddenly. Yeah, suddenly. And uh, we'll, we'll take you to the... And, yeah, and... and uh, oh, yeah, you don't have to get involved with, with actually, um, you know, the, the, the drugging her and knocking her out and, you know, then, then uh, ta- oiling her ass up or whatever, you know, we, we do because we're weird. Um, yeah, I, like, that, that whole bit simply... Because it's like we know what's going to happen because we wouldn't have been introduced to the taxidermy... The taxidermist's room, as it were, where you've got the stuffed or the clayed... Almost clay, because when you see Beth... She sees one of these former May Queens uh, dead upright in the seat, and she pokes at her hand, and her hand's just like clay. It, just, it crumbles straight away. And there's bone underneath. And so you're thinking, well, you wouldn't be shown that if you're not going to see it again. And you know there's only five minutes left in the film. Like, you know... It's so clumsy. Yeah. I think I said in one of the other podcasts that one can tell certain directors because on The Wicker Man... Hardy had a very experienced and capable crew and he was working with the backing of a British film studio British Lion which has been revived in name only incidentally to to make the wicker tree so any crazy ideas that he might have had even though he didn't he didn't actually write the script for the wicker man of course uh, but anything sort of weird that would have been too much would have got smoothed out and if and he, he would have a crew who knew how to make his ideas work on screen in, in reality on location with the wicker tree he has total control over the project effectively which isn't always a good thing no he is he's the author of it he's the writer he's the director it's based on his novel and the result is a complete mess because he doesn't know what he's doing this is only his third film he made one film in the middle called The Fantasist from 1986 uh, sort of murder mystery thriller mm-hmm but it possesses the best ever user comment on the IMDb, which I have here, and it's in the form of a multiple choice quiz. So shall we take the quiz and see how we do? Sure. If you're filming a movie in scenic Ireland, your lead should be A, a famous American actress, B, an unknown Irish actress, or C, an unknown American actress who is incapable of maintaining a convincing Irish accent. When your villain, the phone call killer, telephones his victims, he should A, speak in an eerie, sinister voice, B, not speak at all, but breathe heavily, or C, talk like Kelsey Grammer's character Sideshow Bob on The Simpsons. If you're making a murder mystery, you should have A, a multitude of possible suspects, B, two possible suspects, C, two suspects, one of whom is such a ridiculously over-the-top red herring that he couldn't possibly turn out to be the killer. At the climax of the movie, the villain should A, stalk the heroine with with a big knife, chase the heroine with a giant axe, or C, use the heroine's bare arse for his own personal set of bongos. Finally, if you are Robin Hardy and you've directed The Wicker Man, you should follow it up with A, another cult horror classic, B, a lesser but not completely embarrassing effort, or C, The Fantasist. I I think it's mainly C if not all yes it's I'm I'm desperate to see it (laughs) because 
it sounds so promising. So maybe we'll have to do that at some point. I believe we will have to, yes. And with that in mind, of course, so he's done three films, but he does want to do a fourth film, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he's very keen on making the third part of the Wicker Man trilogy. Now, do you know much about this? I've read a little about it. That's all you need. I know it's it's supposed to be called Twilight of the Gods, uh, which implies that it's going to be in some way involving Norse mythology. But um, I don't really know much about it beyond that. And I suspect he's going to have to probably change the title because of the Twilight films. Oh, yes. There, yes, I mean... You call it, it the Wicker God. It's oh, And it ends up with him grief. burning God. Putting God inside a Wicker Man. Well, I've heard that apparently it's going to involve some kind of fairground or park, fairground park of some kind, that is all based around the Norse gods. And he wants it actually built, which is probably what's delaying it, because it's this man who's 80, if not older. He's, yes, he's in his 80s. It's this man who's in his 80s from the UK trying to raise funds for a Norse-themed uh, fairground... Amusement theme park. Theme park. I, would, I wouldn't call it amusement park. <laughs> a a Norsement park mm. in, in, in Europe. And you know what? No one really wants to do it. He could try Kickstarter. Ooh. But um, it's such a terrible idea. And, and what's going to happen? So he's going to build the park. What's, when the film's finished, then what? Well, here's the thing. So I would have thought that the concept of something like that would be that the park should burn down at the end to keep in tradition with his other films. But, right. But then apparently he wants, to, he wants that to stay as, a, as an actual thing. He wants it to be a, a fully functional amusement park after the fact so that then more money, he gets more income, I assume. I assume. Right, so as, a, as a secondary revenue stream. In a, in a way. Yeah. Like, and, well, it's like um, with, uh, with Star Wars being revived as an ongoing brand, Disney is building um, new Star Wars lands in its yeah. theme parks. So it's basically that, except instead of being about Star Wars, which is something that everyone is aware of and most people enjoy, it's going to be about a film that's going to be made on a very small budget that very few people will see and no one actually thinks it's going to be any good. Yeah, and when you consider the characters in The Wicked Tree as being incredibly deluded... <laughs> but very convinced of their own convictions. It makes, you do, it makes you wonder about Robin Hardy's intentions when it comes to this fourth, potential forthcoming film. Yeah, well, I think his intentions are very, very transparent, much as the characters are. It's whether or not he still uh, exists on the planet Earth... I don't, um, I don't think he'd mind. I, yeah, I think that Robin Hardy's relationship with reality is now becoming increasingly tenuous in terms of his film career. Yeah, I think... Which is a shame, because he's got this one great work, and as I said before, the Citizen Kane of horror movies, because for Orson Welles, after Citizen Kane, it was largely downhill, but generally it wasn't his fault. It was more that he was overambitious... But with Robin Hardy, it's because there's nothing else there. There's nothing. It's scraping at a, an empty well. There's Ooh. a new Twilight book out, which is just the first book rewritten with agendas reversed. Scraping the barrel. This is exactly the same. I have nothing to add. The reviews were inevitably somewhat thin on the ground. When it screened at Fright Fest, 
Empire was in attendance and Damon Wise did write it up for his blog and he actually wrote a fairly extensive review. He notes that it was uh, something of a comedy and rather mischievous and uh, says towards the end that uh, there are images, moods, lines, ideas and jokes jokes? that are sure to stay longer in the mind than many more professional, refined and meticulous productions. There is a single comment underneath this, posted four months later. It was f***ing awful. Was that you? Nope, but that's the only one. Just those four words and nothing more. Written by a man called Loose Screw. That's probably not his real name. It's probably Robin Hardy. The, the contrast between those two does really sum up the film, because... It's a complete shambles. But there is a lot there to find enjoyment in because there is so much bizarreness and weird detail and redundant vestigial nonsense. I think it does stand up to rewatching in the sense that The Room and Manos the Hands of Fate do, in that one can find such incompetence highly entertaining I'd watch it in a group for sure I'd, I'd, that's the only way you'd get me to re-watch this if I was watching with a group of people who loved the Wicker Man who I'd kind of warned them about the Wicker Tree saying this isn't what you're going to expect but you know let's all maybe have a drink and kind of try to enjoy it yeah in a different way it's it, it ought to be a kind of audience participation film I mean, like, like the Rocky Horror Show but like The Room where there is a kind of a vague script for audiences to join in with the, the, the insanity on the screen. And we, we unexpectedly burn the film at the last minute. Well, I think that would be the kindest way out. For all of us. <laughs> Thanks very much to George for participating in this podcast and also buying me a drink at the bar while we were there. If you have any questions or comments for Cinema Limbo, contact us via Twitter at cinema underscore limbo. Or if you have any questions for me personally, it's at J underscore J underscore Phillips with two L's. However, until next time, remember, you must have thought I was Godzilla or something. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com. <laughs>